Chapter 11, The Enchanted Archipelago. As the summer grew hotter and hotter, we decided that it required too much effort to row the sea cow down the coast to our bathing bay, so we invested in an outboard engine. The acquisition of this machine opened up a vast area of coastland for us, for we could now venture much farther afield, making trips along the jagged coastline to remote and deserted beaches, golden as corn, or lying like fallen moons among the contorted rocks. It was thus I became aware of the fact that, stretching along the coast for miles, was a scattered archipelago of small islands, some fairly extensive, some that were really outsized rocks with a wig of greenery perched precariously on top. For some reason which I could not discover, the sea faunae were greatly attracted by this archipelago, and round the edges of the islands, in rock pools and sandy bays the size of a large table, there was a bewildering assortment of life. I managed to inveigle the family into several trips to these islets, but as these had few good bathing spots, the family soon got bored with having to sit on sun-baked rocks while I fished interminably in the pools, and unearthed at intervals strange and, to them, revolting sea creatures. Also, the islands were strung out close to the coast, some of them being separated from the mainland only by a channel 20 feet wide, and there were plenty of reefs and rocks. So guiding the sea cow through these hazards, and making sure the propeller did not strike and break, made any excursion to the islands a difficult navigational problem. Our trips there became less and less frequent, in spite of all arguments on my part, and I was tortured by the thought of all the wonderful animal life waiting in the limpid pools to be caught. But I was unable to do anything about it, simply because I had no boat. I suggested that I might be allowed to take the sea cow out myself, say, once a week. But the family were, for a variety of reasons, against this. But then, just when I had almost given up hope, I was struck with a brilliant idea. My birthday was due fairly soon, and if I dealt with the family skilfully, I felt sure I could not only get a boat, but a lot of other equipment as well. I therefore suggested to the family that, instead of letting them choose my birthday presents, I might tell them the things which I wanted most. In this way, they could be sure of not disappointing me. The family, rather taken aback, agreed, and then somewhat suspiciously asked me what I wanted. Innocently, I said that I hadn't thought much about it, but that I would work out a list for each person, and then they could choose one or more items on it. My list took a lot of time and thought to work out, and a considerable amount of applied psychology. Mother, for instance, I knew would buy me everything on her list, so I put down some of the most necessary and expensive equipment. Five wooden cases, glass-topped, cork-lined, to house my insect collection, two dozen test tubes, five pints of methylated spirits, five pints of formalin, and a microscope. Margot's list was a little more difficult, for the items had to be chosen so that they would encourage her to go to her favourite shops. So from her, I asked for ten yards of butter muslin, ten yards of white calico, six large packets of pins, two bundles of cotton wool, two pints of ether, a pair of forceps, and two fountain pen fillers. It was, I realised resignedly, quite useless to ask Larry for anything like formalin or pins, but if my list showed some sort of literary leaning, I stood a good chance. 
Accordingly, I made out a formidable sheet covered with the titles, authors' names, publishers and price of all the natural history books I felt in need of and put an asterisk against those that would be most gratefully received. Since I had only one request left, I decided to tackle Leslie verbally instead of handing him a list. But I knew that I should have to choose my moment with care. I had to wait some days for what I considered to be a propitious moment. I had just helped him to the successful conclusion of some ballistic experiments he was making, which involved tying an ancient muzzle loader to a tree and firing it by means of a long string attached to the trigger. At the fourth attempt, we achieved what apparently Leslie considered to be success. The barrel burst and bits of metal whined in all directions. Leslie was delighted and made copious notes on the back of an envelope. Together, we set about picking up the remains of the gun. While we were thus engaged, I casually asked him what he would like to give me for my birthday. Hadn't thought about it, he replied absently, examining with evident satisfaction a contorted piece of metal. I don't mind. Anything you like. You choose. I said I wanted a boat. Leslie, realising how he had been trapped, said indignantly that a boat was far too large a present for a birthday and anyway he couldn't afford it. I said, equally, equally indignantly, that he had told me to choose what I liked. Leslie said yes, he had, but he hadn't meant a boat, as they were terribly expensive. I said that when one said anything, one meant anything, which included boats. And anyway, I didn't expect him to buy me one. I had thought, since he knew so much about boats, he would be able to build me one. However, if he thought that was too difficult... Of course it's not difficult, said Leslie, unguardedly, and then added hastily, oh, well, not terribly difficult, but it's the time. It would take ages and ages to do. Look, wouldn't it be better if I took you out in the sea cow twice a week? But I was adamant. I wanted a boat, and I was quite prepared to wait for it. Oh, all right, all right, said Leslie exasperatedly. I'll build you a boat, but I'm not having you hanging around while I do it. Understand, you're to keep well away. You're not to see it until it's finished. Delightedly, I agreed to these conditions. And so for the next two weeks, Spiro kept turning up with carloads of planks and the sounds of soaring, hammering and blasphemy floated round from the back veranda. The house was littered with wood shavings and everywhere he walked, Leslie left a trail of sawdust. I found it fairly easy to restrain my impatience and curiosity, for I had, at that time, something else to occupy me. Some repairs had just been completed to the back of the house and three large bags of beautiful pink cement had been left over. These I had appropriated and I set to work to build a series of small ponds in which I could keep not only my freshwater fauna, but also all the wonderful sea creatures I hoped to catch in my new boat. Digging ponds in midsummer was harder work than I had anticipated, but eventually I had some reasonably square holes dug, and a couple of days splashing around in a sticky porridge of lovely coral pink cement soon revived me. Leslie's trails of sawdust and shaving through the house were now interwoven with a striking pattern of pink footprints. The day before my birthday, the entire family made an expedition into the town. The reasons were threefold. Firstly, they wanted to purchase my presents. Secondly, the larder had to be stocked up. We had agreed that we would not invite a lot of people to the party. We said we didn't like crowds, and so ten guests, carefully selected, were the most we were prepared to put up with. It would be a small but distinguished gathering of people we liked best, 
Having unanimously decided on this, each member of the family then proceeded to invite 10 people. Unfortunately, they didn't all invite the same 10, with the exception of Theodore, who received five separate invitations. The result was that Mother, on the eve of the party, suddenly discovered we were going to have not 10 guests, but 45. The third reason for going to town was to make sure that Lugaretzia attended the dentist. Recently, her teeth had been her chief woe, and Dr. Andrew Celli, having peered into her mouth, had uttered a series of popping noises indicative of horror, and said that she must have all her teeth out, since it was obvious that they were the cause of all her ailments. After a week's arguing accompanied by floods of tears, we managed to get Lugaretzia to consent, but she had refused to go without moral support, so bearing her white and weeping in our midst, we swept into town. We returned in the evening, exhausted and irritable, the car piled high with food and Lugaretzia lying across our laps like a corpse, moaning frightfully. It was perfectly obvious that she would be in no condition to assist with the cooking and other work on the, on the morrow. Spiro, when asked to suggest a solution, gave his usual answer. Never's you minds, he scowled, leaves everything to me. The following morning was full of incident. Lugaretzia had recovered sufficiently to undertake light duties, and she followed us all around the house, displaying with pride the gory cavities in her gums, and describing in detail the agonies she had suffered with each individual tooth. My presence having been duly inspected, and the family thanked, I then went round to the back veranda with Leslie, and there lay a mysterious shape covered with a tarpaulin. Leslie drew this aside with the air of a conjurer, and there lay my boat. I gazed at it rapturously. It was surely the most perfect boat that anyone had ever had. Gleaming in her coat of new paint, she lay there, my steed to the enchanted archipelago. The boat was some seven feet long and almost circular in shape. Leslie explained hurriedly, in case I thought the shape was due to defective craftsmanship, that the reason for this was that the planks had been too short for the frame an explanation I found perfectly satisfactory. After all, it was the sort of irritating thing that could have happened to anyone. I said stoutly that I thought it was a lovely shape for a boat, and indeed I thought it was. She was not sleek, slim and rather predatory looking like most boats, but rotund, placid, and somehow comforting in her circular solidarity. She reminded me of an earnest dung beetle, an insect for which I had great affection. Leslie, pleased at my evident delight, said deprecatingly that he had been forced to make her flat-bottomed, since for a variety of technical reasons this was the safest. I said that I liked flat-bottomed boats the best, because it was possible to put jars of specimens on the floor without so much risk of them upsetting. Leslie asked me if I liked the colour scheme, as he had not been too sure about it. Now, in my opinion, the colour scheme was the best thing about it, the final touch that completed the unique craft. Inside, she was painted green and white, while her bulging sides were tastefully covered in white, black and brilliant orange stripes. A combination of colours that struck me as being both artistic and friendly. Leslie then showed me the long, smooth cypress pole he had cut for a mast, but explained that it could not be fitted into position until the boat was launched. Enthusiastically, I suggested launching her at once. Leslie, who was a stickler for procedure, said you couldn't launch a ship without naming her. 
and had I thought of a name yet? This was a difficult problem, and the whole family were called out to help me solve it. They stood clustered around the boat, which looked like a gigantic flower in their midst, and racked their brains. Why not call it the Jolly Roger? suggested Margot. I rejected this scornfully. I explained that I wanted a sort of fat name that would go with the boat's appearance and personality. Arbuckle? suggested Mother vaguely. That was no use either. The boat simply didn't look like an Arbuckle. Call it the Ark, said Leslie, but I shook my head. There was another silence while we all stared at the boat. Suddenly, I had it. The perfect name. Bootle. That's what I'd call her. Very nice, dear, approved Mother. I was just about to suggest the bum trinket, said Larry. Larry, dear, Mother reproved. Don't teach the boy things like that. I turned Larry's suggestion over in my mind. It was certainly an unusual name, but then so was Bootle. They both seemed to conjure up the shape and personality of the boat. After much thought, I decided what to do. A pot of black paint was produced, and laboriously, in rather trickily capitals, I traced her name along the side. The Bootle Bum Trinket. There it was. Not only an unusual name, but an aristocratically hyphenated one as well. In order to ease Mother's mind, I had to promise that I would only refer to the boat as the Bootle in conversation with strangers. The matter of the name being settled, we set about the task of launching her. It took the combined efforts of Margot, Peter, Leslie and Larry to carry the boat down the hill to the jetty, while Mother and I followed behind with the mast and a small bottle of wine with which to do the launching properly. At the end of the jetty, the boat bearers stopped, swaying with exhaustion, and Mother and I struggled with the cork of the wine bottle. What are you doing? asked Larry irritably. For heaven's sake, hurry up. I'm not used to being a slipway. At last we got the cork from the bottle, and I announced in a clear voice that I christened this ship the Bootle Bum Trinket. Then I slapped her rotund backside with the bottle, with the unhappy result that half a pint of white wine splashed over Larry's head. Look out, look out, he remonstrated. Which one of us are you supposed to be launching? At last, they cast the Bootle Bum Trinket off the jetty with a mighty heave, and she landed on her flat bottom with a report like a cannon, showering seawater in all directions, and then bobbed steadily and confidently on the ripples. She had the faintest suggestion of a list to starboard, but I generously attributed this to the wine and not to Leslie's workmanship. Now, said Leslie, organising things, let's get the mast in. Margot, you hold her nose. That's it. Now, Peter, if you'll get into the stern, Larry and I will hand you the mast. All you have to do is stick it in that socket. So, while Margot lay on her tummy holding the nose of the boat, Peter leapt nimbly into the stern and settled himself with legs apart to receive the mast which Larry and Leslie were holding. This mast looks a bit long to me, Les, said Larry, eyeing it critically. Nonsense, it'll be fine when it's in, retorted Leslie. Now, are you ready, Peter? Peter nodded, braced himself, clasped the mast firmly in both hands and plunged it into the socket. Then he stood back, dusted his hands and the brutal bum trinket, with a speed remarkable for a craft of her circumference, turned turtle. Peter, clad in his one decent suit which he had put on in honour of my birthday, disappeared with scarcely a splash. All that remained on the surface of the water was his hat, the mast, 
and the brutal bum trinket's bright orange bottom. He'll drown, he'll drown, screamed Margot, who always tended to look on the dark side of a crisis. Nonsense, it's not deep enough, said Leslie. I told you that mast was too long, said Larry unctuously. It isn't too long, Leslie snapped irritably. That fool didn't set it right. Don't you dare call him fool, said Margot. You can't fit a 20-foot mast onto a thing like a wash tub and expect it to keep upright, said Larry. If you're so dumb clever, why didn't you make the boat? I wasn't asked to. Perhaps besides, you're supposed to be the expert, though I doubt if they'd employ you on Clyde's side. Very funny. It's easy enough to criticise just because that fool... Don't you call him a fool? How dare you? Now, don't argue about it, dears, said Mother peaceably. Oh, Larry's so damn patronising. Oh, thank God, he's come up said Margot in fervent tones as the bedraggled and spluttering Peter rose to the surface. We hauled him out, and Margot hurried him up to the house to get his suit dry before the party. The rest of us followed, still arguing. Leslie, incensed at Larry's criticism, changed into trunks, and armed with a massive manual on yacht construction and a tape measure, went down to salvage the boat. For the rest of the morning, he kept sawing bits off the mast, until she eventually floated upright, but by then the mast was only about three feet high. Leslie was very puzzled, but he promised to fit a new mast as soon as he'd worked out the correct specification. So the Bootle Bum Trinket, tied to the end of the jetty, floated there in all her glory, looking like a very vivid, overweight Manx cat. Spiro arrived soon after lunch, bringing with him a tall elderly man who had the air of an ambassador. This, Spiro explained, was the King of Greece's ex-butler, who had been prevailed upon to come out of retirement and help with the party. Spiro then turned everyone out of the kitchen and he and the butler closeted themselves in there together. When I went round and peered through the window, I saw the butler in his waistcoat polishing glasses, while Spiro, scowling thoughtfully and humming to himself, was attacking a vast pile of vegetables. Occasionally, he would waddle over and blow vigorously at the seven charcoal fires along the wall, making them glow like rubies. The first guest to arrive was Theodore, sitting spick and span in a carriage, his best suit on, his boots polished, and, as a concession to the occasion, without any collecting gear. He clasped in one hand a walking stick, and in the other a neatly tied parcel. Uh, uh, ha, ha. Uh, many uh, happy returns of the day, he said, shaking my hand. I have brought you a uh, small uh, memento. Um, a small gift, that is, to say present, to uh, commemorate the uh, occasion. Um. On opening the parcel, I was delighted to find that it contained a fat volume entitled Life in Ponds and Streams. I uh, think you will find it a useful um, addition to your library, said Theodore, rocking on his toes. It contains some very interesting information on uh, general freshwater life. Gradually, the guests arrived, and the front of the villa was a surging mass of carriages and taxis. The great drawing room and dining room were full of people, talking and arguing and laughing, and the butler, who, to mother's dismay, had donned a tailcoat, moved swiftly through the throng like an elderly penguin, serving drinks and food with such a regal air that a lot of the guests were not at all sure if he was a real butler or merely some eccentric relative we had staying with us. Down in the kitchen, Spiro drank prodigious quantities of wine as he moved amongst the pots and pans, his scowling face glowing redly in the light from the fires, 
his deep voice roaring out in song. The air was full of the scent of garlic and herbs, and Lugarepsia was kept hobbling to and fro from kitchen to drawing room at considerable speed. Occasionally she would succeed in backing some unfortunate guest into a corner, and holding a plate of food under his nose, would proceed to give him the details of her ordeal at the dentist, giving the most lifelike and most repulsive imitation of what a molar sounded like when it was torn from its socket, and opening her mouth wide to show her victims the ghastly havoc that had been wrought inside. More and more guests arrived, and with them came presents. Most of these were, from my point of view, useless, as they could not be adapted for natural history work. The best of the presents were, in my opinion, two puppies brought by a peasant family I knew who lived not far away. One puppy was liver and white with large ginger eyebrows and the other was coal black with large ginger eyebrows. As they were presents, the family had of course to accept them. Roger viewed them with suspicion and interest, so in order that they should all get acquainted, I locked them in the dining room with a large plate of party delicacies between them. The results were not quite what I had anticipated, for when the flood of guests grew so large that we had to slide back the doors and let some of them into the dining room, we found Roger seated gloomily on the floor, the two puppies gambling around him, while the room was decorated in a fashion that left us in no doubt that the new additions had both eaten and drunk to their heart's content. Larry's suggestion that they be called Whiddle and Puke was greeted with disgust by Mother, but the name stuck, and Whiddle and Puke they remained. Still the guests came, overflowing the drawing room into the dining room and out of the French windows onto the veranda. Some of them had come thinking that they would be bored, and after an hour or so they enjoyed themselves so much that they called their carriages, went home and reappeared with the rest of their families. The wine flowed, the air was blue with cigarette smoke, and the geckos were too frightened to come out of the cracks in the ceiling because of the noise and laughter. In one corner of the room, Theodore, having daringly removed his coat, was dancing the Calamatiano with Leslie and several other of the more exhilarated guests, their feet crashing and shuddering on the floor as they leapt and stamped. The butler, having perhaps taken a little more wine than was good for him, was so carried away by the sight of this national dance that he put his tray down and joined in leaping and stamping as vigorously as anyone in spite of his age, his coattails flapping behind him. Mother, smiling in a rather forced and distraught manner, was wedged between the English padre, who was looking with increasing disapproval at the revelry, and the Belgian consul, who was chattering away in her ear and twirling his moustache. Spiro appeared from the kitchen to find out where the butler had gone to, and promptly joined in the Calamatiano. Balloons drifted across the room, bouncing against the dancers' legs, exploding suddenly with loud bangs. Larry, out on the veranda, was endeavouring to treat, teach a group of Greeks some of the finer English limericks. Puke and Whiddle had gone to sleep in someone's hat. Dr Andrew Chelly arrived and apologised to Mother for being late. It was my wife, madam. She has just been delivered of a baby, he said with pride. Oh, congratulations, Doctor, said Mother. We must drink to them. Spiro, exhausted by the dance, was sitting on the sofa nearby, fanning himself. What? He roared at Andrew Chelly, scowling ferociously. You get another babies? Ye yes, Spiro. A boy, said Andrew Chelly, beaming. How many you gets now? 
asked Spiro. Six, only six, said the doctor in surprise. Why? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, said Spiro in disgust. Six, gollies, carrying on like catsies and dogsies. But I like children, protested Andrew Cherry. When I got married, I asked my wife how many she wants, said Spiro in a loud voice. And she says twos. So I gives her twos and then I gets her sewed up. Six children. Honest to gods, you make me want to throws. Catsies and dogsies. At this point, the English padre decided that he would most reluctantly have to leave, as he had a long day ahead of him tomorrow. Mother and I saw him out, and when we returned, Andrucelli and Spiro had joined the dancers. The sea was dawn calm, and the eastern horizon flushed with pink when we stood yawning at the front door, and the last carriage clopped its way down the drive. As I lay in bed with Roger across my feet, a puppy on each side of me, and Ulysses sitting fluffed out on the pelmet, I gazed through the window at the sky, watching the pink spread across the olive tops, extinguishing the stars one by one, and thought that, taken all round, it had been an extremely good birthday party. Very early next morning, I packed my collecting gear and some food, and with Roger, Whittle and Puke as company, set off on a voyage in the Bootle Bum Trinket. The sea was calm, the sun was shining out of a gentian blue sky, and there was just the faintest breeze. It was the perfect day. The Bootle Bum Trinket wallowed up the coast in a slow and dignified manner, while Roger sat in the bows as lookout, and Whittle and Puke ran from one side of the boat to the other, fighting, trying to lean over the side and drink the sea, and generally behaving in a pathetically landlubberish fashion. The joy of having a boat of your own, the feeling of pleasant power as you pulled on the oars and felt the boat surge forward with a quick rustle of water like someone cutting silk, the sun gently warming your back and making the sea surface flicker with a hundred different colours, the thrill of wending your way through the complex maze of weed shaggy reefs that glowed just beneath the surface of the sea. It was even with pleasure that I contemplated the blisters that were rising on my palms, making my hands feel stiff and awkward. Though I spent many days voyaging in the Bootlebum Trinket and had many adventures, there was nothing to compare with that very first voyage. The sea seemed bluer, more limpid and transparent, the islands seemed more remote, sun-drenched and enchanting than ever before, and it seemed as though the life of the sea had congregated in the little bays and channels to greet me and my new boat. A hundred feet or so from an islet, I shipped the oars and scrambled up to the bows, where I lay side by side with Roger, peering down through a fathom of crystal water at the sea bottom, while the bootle bum trinket floated towards the shore with the placid buoyancy of a celluloid duck. As the boat's turtle-shaped shadow edged across the seabed, the multicoloured, ever-moving tapestry of sea life was unfolded. In the patches of silver sand, the clams were stuck upright in small clusters, their mouths gaping. Sometimes, perched between the shell's horny lips, there would be a tiny, pale, ivory pea crab, the frail, soft-shelled, degenerate creature that lived a parasitic life in the safety of the great shell's corrugated walls. It was interesting to set off the clam colony's burglar alarm. 
I drifted over a group of them until they lay below, gaping up at me, and then gently edged the handle of the butterfly net down and tapped on the shell. Immediately the shell snapped shut, the movement causing a small puff of white sand to swirl up like a tornado. As the current of this shell's alarm slid through the water, the rest of the colony felt them. In a moment, clams were slamming their front doors shut left and right, and the water was full of little whirls of sand, drifting and swirling about the shells, falling back to the seabed like silver dust. Interspersed with the clams were the circulars, beautiful feathery petals forever moving round and round, perched on the end of a thick, long, greyish tube. The moving petals, orange, gold and blue, looked curiously out of place on the end of these stubby stalks, like an orchid on a mushroom stem. Again, the circulars had a burglar alarm system, but it was much more sensitive than the clams. The net handle would get within six inches of the whirlpool of shimmering petals, and they would suddenly all point skywards, bunch together, and dive headfirst down the stalk, so that all was left was a series of what looked like bits of miniature hose pipes stuck in the sand. On the reefs that were only a few inches below the water, and that were uncovered at low tide, you found the thickest congregation of life. In the holes were the pouting blennies, which stared at you with their thick lips, giving their faces an expression of insolence as they fluttered their fins at you. In the shady clefts among the weeds, the sea urchins would be gathered in clusters like shiny brown horse chestnut seed cases, their spines moving gently like compass needles towards possible danger. Around them, the anemones clung to the rocks, plump and lustrous, their arms waving and abandoned and somehow eastern looking dance in an effort to catch the shrimps that flipped past transparent as glass. Rooting in the dark underwater caverns, I unearthed a baby octopus who settled on the rocks like a medusa head, blushed to a muddy brown and regarded me with rather sad eyes from beneath the bald dome of its head. A further movement on my part and it spat out a small storm cloud of black ink that hung and rolled in the clear water, while the octopus skimmed off behind it, shooting through the water with its arms trailing behind it, looking like a, st a streamer-decorated balloon. There were crabs too, fat, green, shiny ones on the tops of the reef, waving their claws in what appeared to be a friendly manner. And down below, on the weedy bed of the sea, the spider crabs with their strange spiky-edged shells, their long, thin legs, each wearing a coat of weeds, sponges, or occasionally an anemone which they had carefully planted on their backs. Everywhere on the reefs, the weed patches, the sandy bottom, moved hundreds of top shells, neatly striped and speckled in blue, silver, grey and red, with the scarlet and rather indignant face of a hermit crab peering out from underneath. They were like small, ungainly caravans moving about, bumping into each other, barging through the weeds, or rumbling swiftly across the sand among the towering clamshells and sea fans. The sun sank lower, and the water in the bays and below the tottering castles of rock was washed with the slate grey of evening shadow. Slowly, the oars creaking softly to themselves, I rowed the bootle bum trinket homewards. Whittle and puke lay asleep, exhausted by the sun and sea air, their paws twitching, their ginger eyebrows moving as they chased dream crabs across endless reefs. Roger sat surrounded by glass jars and tubes in which tiny fish hung suspended, anemones waved their arms and spider crabs touched the sides of their glass prisons with delicate claws. 
He sat staring down into the jars, ears pricked, occasionally looking up at me and wagging his tail briefly, before becoming absorbed once again in his studies. Roger was a keen student of marine life. The sun gleamed like a coin behind the olive trees, and the sea was striped with gold and silver when the bootle bumtringit brought her round behind, bumping gently against the jetty. Hungry, thirsty, tired, with my head buzzing full of the colours and shapes I had seen, I carried my precious specimens slowly up the hill to the villa, while the three dogs, yawning and stretching, followed behind. <laughs>